70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Tôi tên là Hằng, một thính giả thường xuyên theo dõi và ủng hộ kênh tiếng Việt đài phát thanh và truyền hình Hàn Quốc KBS World Radio. Hello, I'm a long-time listener of KBS World Radio's Vietnamese service. I've been studying Korean and I'm always interested in learning about Korea, and I found about the channel in 2015. Thanks to KBS World Radio, I can stay updated on news from Korea. For a Korean language student, Drama Lines is a great teacher of expressions that are not in textbooks. I especially enjoy books on demand where I can learn about various literary works. It is also wonderful how KBS World Radio is setting up YouTube channels in different languages, including Vietnamese, for better access to its content. My heartfelt congratulations to KBS World Radio on its 70th anniversary. I hope you continue to serve as a bridge between Korea and the listeners from around the world. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Wednesday, the 11th of October, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. President Yoon Suk-yeol has ordered government agencies to proactively address the potential economic and security risks stemming from the Israel-Hamas war. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. Sales of Japanese goods have been on the rise in recent months, suggesting that the Korean public's boycott that began in 2019 is all but over. We find out more for our in-depth today. And coming up for Korea Book Club, we review Whale, the international Booker Prize shortlisted work by Chan Myung-gwan. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. President Yoon Suk-yeol convened an emergency meeting on Wednesday to check up on the economy and national security amid the ongoing war between Israel and the Palestinian militant group Hamas. He ordered government agencies to preemptively respond to risks that the nation's economy and security could face, as he said the armed conflict could expand. For this and our other major headlines of the day, we have in the studio with us Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service, Kim In-young, In-young hello. Hello, Chang-ho. So Wednesday's emergency meeting brought together the Ministers of Foreign Affairs, Defence and Industry, as well as the Director of the Spy Agency, the first Vice Finance Minister, as well as the Presidential's Chief of Staff, Kim Daegi, and National Security Advisor, Cho Tae-yong. After his statement, from Tuesday's cabinet meeting, the president said again the conflict could expand. Can you tell us more? 
Yes, he said the conflict is showing signs of developing into a full-scale war, adding that it's difficult to rule out that po the possibility given that a number of countries' interests are intertwined. Yoon said there is a possibility that the nation could become more vulnerable to various crises faced by the international community in the wake of the Israel-Hamas war. The president said in the event of failing to preemptively manage risks in a timely manner, the people will ultimately suffer and instruct related agencies to make thorough preparations so that the Korean people will not suffer any damage or danger. The war between Israel and Hamas has now entered the fifth day. Can you update us on the death toll as well as other news from the fighting? Yes, the death toll has climbed above 2,100 amid reports of rocket fire from Lebanon. According to Reuters on Wednesday, at least 900 people have been killed in Gaza, with the death toll in Israel reaching 1,200. Israel has said that some of the rockets from its northern neighbor were intercepted through its air defense network, but many have hit non-civilian areas. The Israel Defense Forces also said that 12 rockets were fired from Syria targeting Israel, to which the IDF responded with mortars. There is speculation that the front line is expanding from southern Israel to the northern border with Lebanon and Syria, with the U.S. recently warning the Lebanese political militant faction Hezbollah to stay out of the conflict. Israel reportedly told its nationals near the Gaza Strip to prepare food and water, as well as to take shelter, indicating that a ground offensive into the area is imminent. Meanwhile, a group of 192 South Korean tourists returned home from Israel in the early hours of Wednesday via a Korean Air flight. It was the first South Korean flight to land in the troubled country and return with South Korean nationals since the war broke out last Saturday. Can you tell us more? The group was part of some 480 South Koreans who had been staying in Israel on a short-term basis most of them on pilgrimages to sacred places. According to the foreign ministry, another 60 South Korean tourists had moved to Jordan by land earlier on Tuesday, and it is providing some 230 remaining South Korean tourists assistance in leaving the country via air or land. But a Korean air flight that was set to depart for Incheon from Tel Aviv on Wednesday evening was cancelled, and it is unclear whether a flight that was set to arrive in Incheon from Israel on Friday will be operated. Meanwhile, the ministry said it has no plans to advise the 570 South Koreans in Israel on long-term residence visas to immediately evacuate, given that most of them are in safe regions. OK, let's now turn to a by-election that's currently ongoing for the chief of Seoul's Gangsa district. After this election, uh, it's being seen as a litmus test for uh, next year's general elections. Can you first tell us about the voter turnout so far? Yes, as of 5 p.m., total vo voter turnout from both Wednesday and last week's early voting was 42.1 percent, 5.9 percentage points lower than the 48 percent registered at the same time during last year's local election for the district. But reflecting the high interest in the election, the two-day early voting for the election ended with a record turnout of 22.64 percent last Saturday, which was the highest ever figure for any of the country's by-elections and local elections. Ballots will be taken at around 130 polling stations within the district until 8 p.m. Can you remind us of who the candidates are? Yes, it's a six-way race with the People Power Party fielding former District Chief Kim Tae-woo. Kim was removed from office in May upon receiving a suspended prison sentence for leaking official secrets he had obtained while working for a special inspection team under the Moon Jae-in administration. The ruling party named him as its candidate again after his right to run in the by-election was reinstated with a special presidential pardon in August. 
the Democratic Party's candidate's former national police agency deputy chief, Jin Kyo-hun. Yes, the result of the election is expected to become clearer from around 11pm. We'll have the results on our show tomorrow and we'll also analyse the outcome and discuss the implications for our in-depth tomorrow as well. Meanwhile, sticking with political headlines, sparks flew on the second day of the parliamentary audit of government agencies with eight standing parliamentary committees convening. Can you tell us about some of the tensions at the National Assembly today? Yes, in the Legislative and Judiciary Committee hearing, DP lawmakers demanded that Justice Minister Han Dong-un be held responsible for the controversy over the personnel verification of public officials, which falls under his ministry's purview. DP lawmakers claimed that Han failed to submit relevant information for the verification of Kim Heng, the nominee for Minister of Gender Equality and Family, whose recent confirmation hearing ended in a failure after she walked out of a confirmation hearing. In the Foreign Affairs Committee hearing, PPP lawmakers pointed out that North Korea is habitually violating the 2018 Inter-Korean Military Agreement and raised the ineffectiveness of the document. Elsewhere, the opposition party also heavily criticized the government for its massive budget cuts on research and development. And also at the Defence Committee hearing on Tuesday, the Joint Chiefs of Staff said that there is a possibility that North Korea could engage in a surprise attack using Hamas-style tactics. Can you tell us more? Yes, the Chief Director of Operations for the JCS, Kang shin said the North could occupy regions along the inter-Korean border by force or seek to engage in negotiations after taking hostages. He said that surprise attacks by Hamas neutralized Israel's defense system, citing the failure of Israel's Iron Dome as it was overwhelmed in the face of thousands of rockets launched within just a few hours by the militant group. Kang said South Korea could face a similar problem in the event that the North launches attacks with artillery fire and missiles, warning that there is a need to refrain from an over-reliance on scientific systems. To respond to such a possibility, he said the JCS will boost monitoring of signs of provocation from the North and prepare to engage in special warfare on ground, at sea or in the air. And finally, shifting to economic news, the International Monetary Fund has lowered its forecast for South Korea's economic growth for next year from its previous estimate three months ago. So what's the new outlook? South Korea's 2024 growth estimate is down by 0.2 percentage points from July to 2.2%. The IMF's outlook released four times a year in January, April, July and October, held steady at 2.4% in April and July, but was cut in October. But its expectations for this year's growth in the country was left unchanged at 1.4%. The IMF projection is lower than the 1.5% estimated by the OECD and the state-run Korea Development Institute, but the same as the Bank of Korea's. For comparison, the IMF's global economic growth forecast was maintained at 3% for this year, while next year's forecast was at 2.9%, down 0.1 percentage point from its July estimate. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thanks for having me. In 2019, an unofficial public campaign began here in South Korea to boycott Japanese goods and services. This was in response to Tokyo's apparent retaliatory trade measures against Seoul over a wartime forced labour compensation dispute. Now, as relations between the two countries improve, there are signs of the anti-Japanese sentiment thawing. 
To talk more about where things stand, we're joined on the line now by No Gyeongmin, a reporter from the Korea Herald who has been writing about this issue. Mr. No, hello and welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Okay, so let's start by going back to the beginning of this boycott of Japan and Japanese products. It was dubbed simply No Japan, and it started, mm-hmm. as I said, in 2019. Can you walk mm-hmm. our listeners through how it began and why? All right, uh, so the boycott, which started in 2019, arose as a reaction to Japan's decision to impose um, trade sanctions on South Korea. So the Japan enforced export controls on semiconductor materials, which, which are critical for memory chips and displays to Korea. And also Japan removed Korea from its um, whitelist of preferential export partners. And the export curbs were um, widely regarded as retaliation for South Korea's Supreme Court ruling that ordered um, Japanese firms to compensate Korean victims of forced labor during the 1910-45 Japanese occupation of Korea. And Japan, of course, argued that they didn't accept it and argued that the forced labor issue was fully resolved through the 1965 treaty on basic relations between the two nations. So as a result, Korea filed a complaint with the WTO, World Trade Organization, over these matters. And the Korean people also sort of expressed their long-time pent-up anger against Japan by forming this called um, anti-Japan boycott movement called No No Japan Movement uh, across the nation. Right, so we should stress that Japan uh, never admitted uh, officially that the Supreme Court ruling was the reason Mm -hmm. for the uh, trade sanctions. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, the South Korean public viewed it as such, and this was a reaction, the boycott was a reaction to this perceived injustice carried out by Japan uh, when Mm -hmm. it imposed the trade restrictions on Korea. And it was uh, quite a groundswell movement as well at the time. How widespread were the campaigns calling for this boycott of Japanese products? Well, so it was widespread across the nation with the help of online communities and social media like Instagram, YouTube. It spread quite quickly with um, a lot of people posting what is actually going on with Japan and that we should not buy Japanese goods and products. So so they also share a lot of like lists of Japanese companies and companies that are related to supplying Japanese products. So, yeah, and there are a lot of um, consumer, Japanese consumer goods companies that were affected by this movement. Mm. Right. Can and, you give us some yeah. examples which uh, sort mm-hmm. of products were affected by this uh, anti-Japanese sentiment? Right, right. So, um, all clothing, beer, cars. And I think the, one of the most heavily boycotted companies is Uniqlo, which is a um, Japanese apparel retailer company. Mm. Um, they saw like drastic sales drop in 2019 and 2020. And Uniqlo in particular faced um, this backlash from Korean consumers because it released this advertisement video which contained a short remark that could be interpreted as sort of mocking victims of wartime forced labor. So there was sort of the hardest hit during the boycott movement. Mm. Right, and I believe it even led to the closure of uh, stores in Korea uh, because sales was uh, down so so much. Uh, So items like uh, beer, uh, clothing, and even car sales were hit uh, by this 
products, and most notably it was consumer products. Uh, tourism mm-hmm. was also affected, but uh, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic also uh, contributed to the fall in tourism, of course, in Japan. Uh, but now you're reporting that public sentiment in Korea has shifted somewhat then. What's the South Korean public sentiment towards Japan now? What are some of the uh, indicators? Right. So the fervor of this New Japan boycott sort of dwindled. As, as young Koreans, especially young Koreans, are the main major consumers of Japanese products. So what I mean by young Koreans in their 20s and 30s, they started to detach themselves from the movement, well, unwittingly, I guess, and preferred to go with their individual choices. So you um, can see the increased sales figures and increased engagement with um, Japanese, Japan-related economic, culture activities indicate they shifted public sentiment. So you can say, like, these young consumers buy things as long as they satisfy their needs. Mm. So one could argue that, like, watching the anime, for example, Slam Dunk or collecting Pokemon stickers, <laughs> they were very popular in the 90s, mm. and they sort of evoke nostalgia feeling from their childhood. So they're just, like, more drawn to this feeling rather than this um, anti-Japan sentiment. And also there are a lot of... Um, Figures that shows um, this anti-Japan movement dwindling. So you can say, like Uniqlo's recently, they um, have um, seen operating profits, and sales of Japanese beer have also surged dramatically. Um, Japanese automaker companies also um, demonstrate a boost in sales. Right. Um, and there's another indicator. Another indicator in this movement dwindling is the tourism sector. So um, since 2022, Japan emerged as this um, enticing tourist destination. Mm. So this year, um, the number of flight passengers from South Korea to Japan increased after Japan resumed visa-free entry, and they lifted COVID-19 measures. And also, you can say um, one of the contributing factors is the um, Korean won Japanese yen. Jap- Korean won. Japanese yen exchange rates is very favorable for Korean one. Right. In Japan, Japanese yen is really, really cheap right now. Mm. So um, a lot of um, data show that Korean nationals constitute the largest group among uh, foreign visitors in Japan. Yeah. Right. So sales of uh, Japanese consumer products have bounced back significantly in all the areas we mentioned earlier, such as beer, clothing and cars. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then the lifting of travel restrictions after the COVID-19 pandemic has perhaps contributed to uh, the surge in uh, tourism to Japan as well, along with the uh, favorable exchange rate. Uh, especially mm-hmm. with Japan being the closest overseas destination and being a very popular destination in the past. But now it seems uh, the boycott of uh, Japanese products in Japan is over in Korea. How has that happened, though? What factors do you think contributed to the shift in public sentiment towards Japan? Well, um, one would be the sentiment created by the current government. Uh, which seeks to form closer ties with Japan and the U.S. through forming the security partnership. And the current government it intends to put past disputes behind with Tokyo and move forward to respond better to um, military provocations from North Korea and also China's growing regional power. So in regard to the compensation issue, the Yoon Sung-yeol administration they announced the plan to establish this state-run foundation to 
provide compensation to victims of forced labor, meaning that um, former Japanese firms that were responsible for this are now free from direct financial responsibility, although the Korean top court's ruling um, said to the contrary in 2018. Mm. So in March, um, Seoul withdrew its WTO complaints against Tokyo's export controls, and they now reinstated Japan to its whitelist. Japan also redesignated South Korea as a whitelist group, meaning that Seoul will uh, receive preferential export treatment. Mm. So, yeah, under the Yun administration, we will make the end of the trade dispute, which started in 2019. Right. So I'm sure it's a combination of things. As you said, the uh, younger generation perhaps not contributing to the boycott as strongly and perhaps a general fatigue towards this uh, anti-Japanese sentiment as well. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also the political environment in Korea, you're saying. The uh, Yun sung yeol administration looking to build friendlier times with the Japan that has provided the backdrop, the footing for this turnaround as well. Mm-hmm. So perhaps uh, this anti-Japanese sentiment is under the bridge now, for now at least, or at least until this administration uh, is in power. Perhaps that that begs the question, though, how long uh, can this last? If it's turned around once, will it turn around again at some point? What would you say are some of the uh, risks uh, that might trigger anti-Japanese sentiment again at some point? Um, So the biggest issue at the the moment is the Fukushima water release. it could pose one significant risk because the country is, is grappling with these different opinions regarding Japan's decision to discharge their treated wastewater. So the main opposition party, the Democratic Party of Korea, they argues that the water from the plant it's, is nuclear waste, while the ruling power party, People Power Party, they call it treated wastewater. So they have different terms. Mm. They use different terms. And these terms obviously reflect their very varying stances towards Japan's approach to the hand, handling this Fukushima water disposal issue. And obviously another uh, risk, I would say, it pertains to wartime forced labor victims. So some people still argue that Yun-Sang-il administration should remain aware of public sentiments towards Japan as, they, as some people still demand a proper apology for the wartime atrocities mm. from Japan. Um, the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida said he felt heartbroken, but he didn't really offer a direct apology for their treatment or for forcing a Korean people into labor. So uh, one, one, one local survey shows that uh, around 60% people oppose Seoul's proposition, particularly if it doesn't have Japan's genuine apology mm. and direct, direct compensation to the, to the victims. Right. Many of the issues involving Korea's grievances towards Japan still remain ultimately uh, unresolved, such as historical colonial issues, such as the forced labor issue or comfort women as well. And more recent issues as well, as you mentioned, such as the Fukushima nuclear plant wastewater release. Uh, Many still remain upset about these issues. They at least they remain unresolved. So until uh, there is some sort of closure with these issues, there will perhaps be a risk that this uh, that that sort of widespread anti-Japanese sentiment we saw in 2019 could resurface. Uh, For now, relations seem to be on the positive upswing. Uh, 
Mr. No, we appreciate your time today. We'll leave it there. We've been speaking to No Gyeong Min from the Korea Herald. Thank you once again for briefing us on this issue today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 47.50 points, or 1.98% on Wednesday, to close at 2,450.08. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also jumped, climbing 22.12 points, or 2.78%, to close at 817.12. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 10.81 against the U.S. dollar closing the day at 1,338.71. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it is our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. It's time now for Korea Trending. And for that, we have with us in the studio now, news editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you again. Good to see you again, Jango. Okay, let's get straight into the first story. What do you have for us? So on Wednesday, the Seoul Metropolitan Fire and Disaster Headquarters urged citizens to take extra caution to prevent fires in October. We're talking about fire, just fire cases that could happen anytime, any point in city areas near your homes. Right, okay. So why are the authorities then making this announcement with this month in mind? So records compiled in the past five years show in the month of October during that span, total of 2,181 fires resulting in 134 casualties, including 14 fatalities, have been listed and recorded. When compared when compared to the number of cases to casualties during this period, October places above all other months of the year as a period with the most victims of such incidents. A lodging facilities had the biggest number of fire cases for the month of October over the past five years. There's been 30 cases, second only to January, which saw 46. Right, OK. I understand that the report did not go into the reasons why October seems particularly susceptible to dangerous fires. Perhaps it's because the air does get quite dry during the colder months in Korea, but uh, October is also a period where it's not too cold for fires to start. That's uh, just my hypothesis. Right, but in Trans- case... the transitional period where you're going from humid to dry, certainly right. that's a contributing factor when it comes. It certainly uh, helps, does not help in terms of preventing fires from sparks or fires from growing further. Perhaps that's why. In any case, the numbers suggest that there definitely is a pattern for October. So what have the authorities warned then? What have they said about what can be done to prevent fires? Looking at statistics again, around 60% of the of, of the cases show that fire cases were caused by negligence. Among them, over 37% caused by discarded cigarette butts. As well as fire and disaster authorities warned smokers to make sure that cigarettes are extinguished before discarding them and do not simply flick them away and take extra caution if they're indoors especially. Mm. In the case of indoor fires, people are advised to wet a towel or clothes and use them to cover their mouths and noses when evacuating the premises. So this is uh, quite uh, quite concerning and interesting at the same time, mm. confusing as well to a certain degree because people don't burn cigarettes as much as they used to. There's Vaping has been all the rage in recent years right. as well. Right, so certainly something to be careful of during the month of October. Okay, let's uh, move on to the second story of the day. What do you have for us? Pyo Yerim, a YouTuber who became popular after being seen by many as the real-life version of the protagonist in the hit Netflix series The Glory, which features a school bullying victim that fights back, passed away, unfortunately, on Tuesday. 
Yes, this is a tragic story. Pure was only 27 years old, and she was hailed by some as an inspiration for uh, many victims that have remained silent. What do we know about her passing so far? According to Pusanjin Police Station in Busan on Tuesday, police received an emergency call that a woman fell in the Songjigok Reservoir at 12.57 p.m. Uh, the emergency rescue squad carried out a search underwater for about three hours and then found Pure. She was rushed to the nearby hospital but was in cardiac arrest and pronounced dead by the doctors. She did upload a video on YouTube, which has now been deleted by the platform, hinting at the possibility of her taking her own life. She said that she became the target of a YouTuber and some online communities with some reportedly even claiming Pure lied about being a school violence victim. And then she said she could no longer take such attacks. Right. So she became a target for online bullying yet again as she attempted to overcome her alleged past bullying experiences and became uh, a public recognized figure in the process. Uh, despite this uh, unfortunate set of circumstances, I know that she still called for victims to continue to find the strength to come forward, right? Right. In her last video, she said although she could not continue living, she implored viewers and authorities to carry on investigation, investigations into her case as well as other similar incidents. Police are seeking out and questioning various figures surrounding her, including those with close relations. Pure revealed she was bullied from elementary through high school by classmates. She was inspired to come forward with her story after watching The Glory. From January, she made appearances on popular TV shows and YouTube channels that cover various social issues. And in April, she filed a national petition asking for abolition of provisions that favor perpetrators of school violence, such as the statute of limitations on school violence. Well, whatever her personal situation may have been, hopefully her actions and her words while she was alive will have contributed to help improve the situation around bullying. In the meantime, my thoughts go out to her family and friends. Let's move on to the last story. We are shifting gears quite dramatically here. Can you tell us some more? Gag Concert, arguably the most beloved weekend comedy show on national TV in Korea, is making a long overdue comeback. Right, so a comedy show on TV is making this long-awaited comeback, as you've said. It's been off, for, off the air for three years now. Uh, we actually talked about this on the show a couple of months back, but we didn't have the exact information then. So can you provide us with the details? Yes, KBS announced on Wednesday the brand-new season will begin on November 12th at 10.25 p.m., looking to become the go-to program to wrap up the week on Sunday nights again on KBS 2TV. Since launching in 1999, the network's longest-running comedy show features numerous brief skits that continue to tickle the funny bones to this day. Some of the short clips on YouTube are getting a lot of hits as well, mm. and still pretty relevant, some of the comedy clips. Mm. Some of the material and the delivery were ahead of its time, some would say. Indeed, and while viewership might have fallen in the last few years of its run, it was still considered a big loss for the comedy scene in more general terms as well, because gag concert long served as an incubator of sorts for future comedy superstars, right? Yes. While some might say it has run its course and the curtain was dropped just in time, uh, the end of the show meant many well-known and aspiring comedians lost a priceless venue that served as a gateway and a home. Mm. The competition was always fierce, from auditions to get picked as a performer to rising among the ranks by squeezing out brilliant ideas and executing them to perfection. Not only did they need nerves of steel to do it live, they also needed the durability to outlast colleagues as well as up-and-comers to remain on top. 
Naturally, along the way, superstars were noticed, groomed and blossomed. Many former gag concert members are prominent fixtures in various stage performances, TV shows and movies, with some even becoming successful entrepreneurs. But of course, they would always welcome the opportunity to go, to go back on stage to pro- perform with their familiar uh, friends, colleagues, rivals mm. and uh, the uh, <laughs> audience. on KBS uh, studio for a gag concert. Yeah, so once again, you'll be able to celebrate the show's return on November 12th, KBS 2TV. That's all the time we have for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Daniel, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, it's our Literary Corner Korea Book Club. This is our weekly segment where we explore the world of Korean literature and books, usually through works in translation and beyond. Joining me now in the studio, it is our literary critic, Barry Welsh. Once again, Barry, hello. It's good to see you. Yes, good to see you again. Okay, so what do you have for us this week? So this week we're reviewing a novel called Whale by Chun Myung-gwan, uh, published last year by Europa Editions and translated into English by Chi Young Kim. Uh, the Korean title is Kori, uh, and it was actually nominated for the International Booker Prize this year. It didn't win, unfortunately, but it's still uh, very prestigious to be among mm. the nominees. Uh, and Chun is a very popular writer here in Korea with a career spanning almost two decades now. He debuted in 2003 with a highly regarded and much loved story called Frank and Me, uh, which won the Munhak Dongne New Writer Award that same year. And in the following year, Chon published his debut novel, which was uh, today's novel Whale. And at the time, it became something of a, a literary sensation. It was extremely highly praised. It became a bestseller and it won the uh, prestigious Munhak Dongne Novel Award uh, in 2004, the year it was published. Since then, he's published several more novels and short story collections, uh, including Modern Family, which was adapted into a movie, and uh, Homecoming. Uh, but Whale, I think, is still his his uh, masterwork or his representative work. It's a deeply uh, enjoyable work of literary fiction. Uh, it's been compared to Colombian author Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, and that's a very apt description. Whale is a similarly uh, magical, realist, uh, at times fairy tale-like satire of uh, modern Korean history, uh, told through a multi-generational saga of uh, three women and an abundance of supporting characters, uh, and it spans a big chunk of Korean history in the 20th century. Right, so as you said, this work, uh, it made headlines this year after it was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize. So it has received international acclaim as well. And it was uh, especially welcome to see the veteran translator Kim Ji-young uh, nominated as well, being recognised for her work. She is a figure that we've talked about many times on this segment before as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, this work, you said it was a magical realist satire spanning a modern Korean history. Can you briefly sum up the plot for us and some of the central themes explored? Right, so it's actually a very uh, difficult novel to summarise because there's so so much happening in it. But it primarily focuses on the story of Gumbok, who's a young woman who leaves her uh, her small rural village to seek her fortune uh, in the big city. Uh, and Gumbok is a resourceful and ambitious woman and she quickly rises through the ranks of, uh, ranks of society uh, She becomes a successful businesswoman and a a landowner and a very influential person in her community. However, 
However, this success comes at a significant price. Uh, she's forced to make some uh, very uh, terrible sacrifices, uh, personal sacrifices and professional sacrifices. And uh, through her story and then also later her daughter Chunhee's story, Whale explores a number of uh, complex and often challenging themes, including gender roles, social class and uh, how uh, the nature of power, how how power operates in a society. Uh, And Goombok herself is actually at times quite a challenging uh, person or challenging character. She is, uh, in some ways, she's a highly admirable person, but also extremely and at times unpleasantly uh, flawed. Mm. But uh, this just makes her a, a very engaging character. You know, she's a strong, uh, independent woman who refuses to be defined by uh, traditional gender roles of the society around her. But at the same time, she's also ruthless and ambitious, and she's willing to do awful things to to uh, to get ahead. Uh, and this includes betraying people around her, uh, abusing her daughter, neglecting her daughter, uh, and generally just stepping on or over anyone around her to climb her way up society. Uh, And in her story, we can also see uh, the sort of exploration of the social and economic changes that South Korea uh, was going through after the uh, Korean War. If you know anything about Korean history, you'll recognize, you know, you'll know what this novel is talking about. Uh, and Goombok's rise to power, uh, you know, mirrors the the rise of South Korea as a as a successful uh, nation in, in the world. Uh, and the novel also highlights the dark side of that economic boom, the you know, the dark side of the miracle on the the hand, uh, and her success, Goombok's success, uh, is often built on the exploitation of other people. Right, I see. So you can see the uh, the parallels the story is making with Korea's own troubled history. Then, so we've talked about this uh, the fact that this work was celebrated uh, when it was uh, published initially uh, in the mid two thousands. What do you think made it stand out? How does Whale compare to perhaps uh, other works of? Uh, modern Korean literature. Right, yeah, so Whale is a genuinely uh, unique and innovative novel. I think it really does stand out from other works of of modern Korean literature. I haven't read anything uh, that tackles Korean history quite the way that Chon does here. I'm not sure what other Korean novel I would compare it to. It really does seem to stand alone. Chon's writing is very bold and imaginative. Uh, He's blending elements of realism and fantasy and satire to create a story that's it's very entertaining but it's also very thought-provoking it also has an earthy uh, body tone that's full of vulgarity that I found a joy to read uh, and a succession of uh, wonderfully realised characters. So this char- this novel is just packed full of, of characters. Uh, so, for example, there's a man who's referred to as the man with the scar. Uh, there's uh, one of uh, Goombok's first uh, lovers is this uh, giant man called Kokjong uh, and many, many more characters. And they sort of come on and off the stage of the novel, uh, you know, at sort of relevant points. And it's really fantastic to see how they're developed. Uh, And one of the other things that sets uh, Whale apart from other, you know, Korean novels that we've reviewed on the show is this use of magical realism. Mm. So magical realism is a literary genre that combines elements of realism with elements of fantasy. So as in 100 Years of Solitude or, uh, you know, Salman Rushdie's most famous books. And in Whale, Chon is using that sort of magical realism to create 
uh, this sort of depiction of Korea that is both familiar and very strange. So, for example, we have all of these sort of magical things that happen. So, Chun-hee, uh, Gunbok's daughter, communicates telepathically with a retired circus elephant. Uh, there's a woman who controls an army of bees. Uh, there's a magical curse that changes the fates of, of most of the main characters. And that all sounds very strange when I say it now, but the way it's sort of woven into the story uh, is really very clever and interesting. Uh, and like I mentioned, the novel just features just an array of complex and well-developed characters, not just Goombok and Chun-hee, uh, just lots of the side characters and supporting characters, and, and lots of them will definitely stay with, uh, stay with readers long after you finish reading this book. Wow. So uh, there are some surrealist elements as well in there. Uh, that's perhaps something readers should note uh, when approaching this work. But as you said, that's perhaps what makes this work so unique and special. As I mentioned, it received the International uh, Booker Prize uh, shortlist. It received international acclaim for that. Uh, do you think then it does translate well for an international audience? There are, as you said, uh, elements of Korean history in there. Uh, what do you think it offers international readers? Uh, right, so absolutely, I think this is a book that is, you know, very accessible to to anybody, uh, and people should definitely should read Whale because it's it's a very well written novel, it's a very thought provoking novel, and it offers a unique perspective on Korean culture and history. Uh, it, it, like I said already, it's very entertaining. I thought it was full of humour, also full of suspense. Uh, you know, like a cast of genuinely memorable uh, characters that just sort of pop out. It was, you know, you feel very uh, emotionally connected to some of the characters, especially Chun Hee. And there's this, you know, a series of strange and gripping events. But it's very accessible and very readable. It is a challenging novel in some ways because it explores uh, sort of, you know, difficult. Feelings Themes, like we've said, so gender roles, social class, power, the abuse of power, uh, you know, the, some of the political, uh, the dictatorship is explored in, in the novel as well. Uh, but it does offer a unique perspective on Korean culture and history. But at the same time, it's rooted in the Korean experience. But I think as well, it is just something that's universally relatable. Mm. It's certainly a novel that will stay with you, at, you know, long after you finishing finish reading it. I think it certainly will with me. We should perhaps give uh, a small word of caution, though. Some readers with maybe more delicate sensibilities might want to skip whale. Right. It is full of uh, violence and sex and abuse and earthy language and frequently discusses life in quite vulgar terms. If that's mm. not for you, then then maybe uh, maybe skip um, skip this one. It's not a novel that shies away from the unpleasant aspects of life, but instead embraces and accepts this as a, as a part of life and certainly a significant part of Korean life in the 20th century. It's also a novel that... Uh, you know, in its way, offers readers a primer on Korean history uh, in the 20th century. If you think of something like Min Jin Lee's Pachinko, that's doing the same kind of thing through a, a, a sort of a more realistic lens, uh, whereas Whale is telling us a, a similar kind of story, but it's doing it through fable and fairy tale and magic. I thought it was a huge achievement, and it's absolutely a must-read for any fans of Korean literature. Well, that is quite the endorsement indeed. Uh, OK, we'll have to wrap it up there. That was Whale by Chum Myung-wan, translated by uh, Ji Young Kim. Barry, thank you for that recommendation, and we'll see you again next time. OK, take care.
Hello everyone, this is Chelis Yang Sung-won, Artistic Director of Music in Pyeongchang Festival. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We've come now to Morning Edition Preview, our closing segment where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald, who we thank, of course, for providing us with their early editions to make this segment possible. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you as always. Hello, Jango. Okay, so what's the first article that has caught your eye for tomorrow? Well, we are just over a couple of months away from 2024. I can't believe we're in <laughs> October already. For me, like time has flown by so much. Indeed. But yeah, there is a book which comes out around this time every year. It's called Trend Korea. And I'm sure you can guess from the name, it predicts the biggest economic and consumer trends in the country next year. That's what uh, Hwang Joo Young's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald is about. Yes, uh, if I remember, remember correctly, we talked about the book this time last year <laughs> we as well, did. I think. It, yes. uh, it had predicted a, a new office culture where employees would stop being loyal to companies. Right. Yes. Uh, the Seoul National University's Consumer Trend Research Centre annually releases this report. Mm-hmm. Yes. But can you walk us through then some of the big trends that are predicted to occur next year. So yeah, last year, a lot of the predictions were made because of the COVID-19 pandemic had changed so much in our daily lives. Mm. The forecast included people becoming more individualistic and the gap between the wealthy and poor possibly widening. Well, this time, a lot of the forecasts are related to AI. Mm. This year, we saw artificial intelligence being used in a wide variety of industries and being used by companies to deal with customer service tasks and more. It is everywhere. So it makes sense why it would be the biggest trend for next year. Right. It's been the biggest buzzword of this year as well. So mm. it would uh, make sense to assume that next year is going to continue to change our world, which it has already done. It's disrupted right. so many uh, industries and caused a lot of headaches for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, so what kind of forecast does the book include regarding AI exactly? Well, well, it predicts that human and AI collaboration is inevitable and that the technology would still need human control and direction to achieve its full potential. It went on to say that humans need to understand their capabilities and need to have an understanding of history and philosophy to create synergy with AI. Right. AI is essentially already here. We have to figure out how (laughs) to live with it, essentially. We can't turn the clock back. Mm. So it's a very important time indeed for uh, not just Korea, the whole world, really, uh, as governments look to try and create uh, laws and restrictions to stop this technology from uh, getting out of control. That's going to be a huge issue for next year, definitely. Even uh, without looking at this book, I think uh, many would be able to say that. Uh, Meanwhile, what other predictions were made? Well, it said that people have become too obsessed with perfection, and this could lead to social collapse. Social media platforms are expected to influence discouragement in society, and businesses will need to focus on being perfect rather than having the best monetary deals. Mm. So there are some serious predictions, but there are more in the article if you're interested in reading them. Yes, this is always a thought-provoking book whenever it comes out each year. So it'll be interesting to see uh, once again uh, what uh, the book says about 2024 and what the future has in store.
Let's continue on to our next article. What else have you found in tomorrow's newspapers? Well, I found some big news for our listeners overseas who are studying Korean right now. Jun Ji-hae's article in the national section of the Korea Times explains that people outside of Korea will have double the opportunity to take the test of proficiency in Korean, also known as TOPIC, from next year. Okay, so yes, TOPIC, it's... uh, The Korean language test for non-native speakers wishing to study uh, Korean at universities, be employed at Korean companies, or just for people who want to find out their Korean level, of course. This is the benchmark test. So how many opportunities then will there be for overseas test takers next year? Well, before I say that, let's just say I'm very familiar with this test as I have to take it every two years because it expires every two years. Right, I see. You need it for uh, visa issues in Korea as well, right? Yes, I use it for visas, yes. Mm. But um, yeah, so the opportunities will be eight next year. Currently, there are only four chances. So there is a project called Study Korea 300K. The Ministry of Education aims to attract 300,000 foreign students to study at domestic universities by 2027. Hmm. The project was announced back in August, and it looks like the Korean government wants to attract skilled foreign workers and increase Korea's global competitiveness. But also there were complaints that there weren't many opportunities overseas, especially because more and more people are looking to take the test these days. Indeed, we've talked about it before. Uh, K-pop, K-content, K-food, these have all really helped uh, Korean language become more popular uh, overseas as well. So more people are wanting to take the test. It's not surprising, really. I believe uh, the ministry also plans to do more than just increase the number of uh, test uh, chances, right? Sure, it does. Yeah, it will also expand opportunities in countries with the highest demand of test takers. So they include Vietnam, Indonesia and India. Mm. So for next year, many people will be able to, many more people will be able to take the topic test. And I think this means we could be seeing an increase in the number of foreigners living in Korea over the next few years. Yes, and that is the aim for this current government as well. They're yes. looking to create the... Uh, immigration agency as well to mm. help encourage that. So yes, welcome news, I believe, for Korean learners and Korean lovers. Okay, that's where we're going to wrap it up for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. And that's all from us here at Korea24. We'll be back tomorrow with more news, reviews and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio.